are going to start things a little differently. We're still in our, our series in Revelation, and um, I just want to say that uh, there's a handout that we made up, uh, a primer on apocalyptic literature that uh, we wanted to put into your hands, and so that was linked in the e-bulletin on Friday as well. So again, you can go to hbc.info and uh, find the button for the e-bulletin, go there and find this primer. It's a three-page downloadable PDF that just explains our position on, on the end times literature in the Bible, the apocalyptic literature, and, and we just frame up this series just a lot more, give you a little bit better understanding of everything that we're uh, kind of the foundation for what we're doing in this series in Revelation. So now let's, again, a little bit different start to this. I don't have the podium up here yet, and we're going to start with a little illustration. And so I do uh, want to um, invite uh, Edu and Rafi up here and uh, a couple of volunteers. Actually, they're on staff, so they had to do this. And uh, Edu was whining about it after first service, so Rafi didn't whine about it that I know of. So these guys, stretch that right out, guys, uh, nice, and, nice and taut. Yeah, just that's good, as, as, as tight as you can get it. Yeah, that's good. And, um, you know, the apocalyptic literature, we're going to get to this in just a moment, the apocalyptic literature compels us to think about and to grasp the nature of time. And for those of you who like movies with, with time shifting and going back and forth in time, if you like those kinds of movies, you're going to love this message. If you don't like those kinds of movies, this is going to be exhausting. You're going to need a nap this afternoon. I'm just going to lay it out for you because we're going to talk about time. We want to grasp the nature of time. And as we start the message, just to lay a foundation for this, I'm going to give you like seven very important points about time. And we're going to talk about uh, the timeline behind, behind us. The first thing is we live in time, but God is outside of time. And when we understand this very simple principle that we are in time and God is outside of time, this is going to help us understand a little bit better what John is seeing in the book of Revelation, the visions that he's seeing, and how those all relate to our time period. So imagine that this, all of this, everything around us is the expanse of eternity. It is infinite, it is three-dimensional, and it is timeless. And, and we sing, it's hard for us even to understand this, because one of the most beloved hymns of all time is Amazing Grace, and we sing in that hymn, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, and the problem with that lyric is, there won't be any years and there isn't any sun in eternity. Yet we sing that in our very human attempt to understand what eternity is actually going to be like. It's a very lyrical, poetic way of trying to understand something that's very difficult to understand. Secondly, and relatedly, time is a creation act of God. Time is a creation act of God. Genesis 1.5 God says there was evening and there was morning the first day. Prior to that moment, Genesis 1-4, no seconds, no minutes, no hours, no days, no months, no years, no decades, no centuries, nothing. There was only what theologians call, if you will, before the timeline there was what we conceive of as eternity past. That's a phrase that's used by theologians. But even that, the concept of eternity past is a human construct. 
to explain what existed pre-creation in eternity. Thirdly, time has a beginning and an end. The beginning is here with Edu. The end, although undefined for us yet, because we're still on the timeline here somewhere, with Rafi over here, that's the end of the timeline. It has a beginning and an end. Eternity has neither. Even when we use expressions like eternity past and eternity future, they're not exactly accurate because eternity doesn't sit before anything else or after anything else. It's just eternity. It is not constrained by time at all. Earth history floats in the midst of eternity, and every human being has ever lived has done so on this timeline. At the beginning of the timeline, Adam and Eve and all the patriarchs and Israel all here, they lived on the timeline. We, somewhere over here, we're not sure where because we don't know where the end of the timeline is. We're living somewhere on this timeline as well. Every human being who's ever lived has done so on the timeline. And then this, a fourth point. The redemptive plan, the plan of salvation of God to save us, which from our perspective occurred on earth at a certain period in time, in reality was accomplished in eternity outside of time. Now, let me explain this. First of all, these guys are going to raise this up. See, they know. They had a rehearsal at 9 o'clock. But look at this, the cross in the middle of this timeline. This is going to look cooler for the people on the live stream. We've gone to the wide shot so that they can see this. But the cross there standing at the middle of this, and we don't know. Again, we don't know how much time exists on, the, on this side of the timeline as it progresses forward into what is our future. For us, the cross, the empty tomb, all of it happened on our timeline. You can lower your arms. I know that's hard. It happened on our timeline at a specific moment in time. But in reality, it happened before the creation. You're saying like, Todd, that sounds like a wonderful theory, but do you have a verse for me? And I do. In fact, it's in Revelation, we're going to get to there eventually, Revelation 13, 8, where John is remarking that everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Everyone's name who has not been written before the foundation of the world, before creation, before the timeline, before all of that, before Genesis 1, 1, there was a book, our names were put into it, and the lamb was slain because it's the, it's the names of those who are redeemed by the slain lamb whose names go into that book. So this all happened before creation and what we know is eternity past. These events played out on our timeline though for our benefit. And it isn't so much that they happened before time so much as they happened outside of time, and there's a difference there. Here's a fifth point. Everyone still doing okay? Yeah, all the people who watched Interstellar are loving this. Everyone else is like, can we go for lunch now? All right. Five, everything that John saw in the visions is already accomplished. 
I mean, we approach Revelation and we think this is future. We, we read a lot of future stuff. And yes, from our perspective on the timeline, it's still future. It hasn't rolled out. But everything John saw in the visions was already fully accomplished. And so what we see here in Revelation and also in the Old Testament prophets, in all the apocalyptic sections of the scripture where Jesus talked about these things in the gospels also, these are not storyboards. They're not like concepts of what, what could happen. This isn't God just predicting the future and then waiting for it to play out. Revelation is a record from beginning to end of things that have already occurred. Everything, including the final victory, has already happened. And John is seeing completed events. Now, I know what's going on in your head right now, because you're thinking, but John is laying out so many phrases and timestamps as he goes along in the book, and you'd be right. John sees them in sequence because he, like us, is bound by time. John lives on the timeline with us. At least he did. And so he wrote. We're going to see some of these phrases even in today's passage. He wrote, after this. So in the sequence of things that he saw, after he saw this thing, he saw this thing. He says, then I saw and looked. And when I looked, and he talked about in, in chapter 6 of the martyrs waiting in chapter 8, he's going to talk about there being silence in heaven for, he says, for about a half an hour. And that's by his reckoning of these things. This is merely John relating in a way that he and his time-bound readers, including us, would understand on a timeline. But John, when he's looking at these visions, he's, he's seeing visions. And, and, and this is why it can be so challenging just to lay it all out, all out in these end-time uh, timelines that you'll often see to be precise about that because John's looking at one thing and then he kind of turns and sees another thing and then he sees something else and he's not necessarily seeing it in the sequences that it will roll out to us on the timeline. But we may be reading about something that's the past or we may be reading something right after it that's, that's about currently happening and then we may fast forward to something that's distant future and then something that's more near future. And again, this is why it's hard to set precise dates for any of this or to lay out any kind of a sequence. And the implication is this, seventh. The implication is this, and this is the purpose for all of the apocalyptic literature. Believers should be hope-filled and confident in their faith, no matter their earthly circumstances. We can have confidence, we can have have great hope in Jesus Christ. In fact, we sang that during our worship pass, package. And, 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 and we look at this verse, we sang these verses from the Apostle Paul. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is finished, Jesus said. So this is Paul's vision. Paul saw it, backs up what John says. This is not only accomplished on the cross and at the empty tomb on the timeline as we look back on it, but it was accomplished in eternity. And in effect, we're not waiting. We're not waiting for Jesus to defeat Satan ultimately and finally. 
Satan's already done, drawn and quartered, and finished off. And so when we're studying Revelation, we're actually studying history. Just as much as we would be studying history if we opened the book of, Re- of Exodus today. All right, thanks guys. That's perfect. Let's give them a hand. And uh, we're going to get the podium up here. And all of this leads us, all of that was important. And hopefully um, you were able to digest some of that and all of that. Um, or you can always go back and watch it again if there's parts of it that you're still trying to figure out. But all of it lays the foundation for what we want to look at in this message. So that was seven points in an introduction. I've got seven points in the message. And I've got a seven question true or false quiz near the end. Everybody good? All right. Uh, Hopefully we're all good with that. But this leads us into what we're going to see in this message. It was a bit of an unusual introduction, but it gets us to the place where we can now look at Revelation chapter seven. Because as one of God's own people... There are some incredible implications for me, and understanding time is going to help me understand those implications. So Revelation 7, let me read this uh, for us, and then we'll start uh, looking at this. Revelation 7, 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, with the seat of the living God, uh, the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. And after this, I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every 
tear from their eyes. Well, as one of God's own people, here are the implications for me, and, and I want you to take this and these statements and say these for yourself. As one of God's own people, I am, first of all, advantaged by His mercy. That we define mercy as not getting what I do deserve. Grace is getting what I do not deserve. Mercy is not getting what I do deserve as a sinner. And God is offering His mercy to us here. We are advantaged by His mercy. In fact, in, in Revelation 7 here, there are two very distinct visions. The first one is in the first uh, eight uh, verses. And these two visions, and again, if you can get that timeline in your mind, these two visions land in two very distinct places as far as our perspective of them on the timeline. The first vision uh, in the first eight verses depicts the 144,000, and it starts with this, four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. Now, by the way, this is a literary device. It's an illustration Okay, this is not a proof text for flat earthers. Clear? Four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. Notice that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. There's a tendency by some who interpret Revelation to want to make everything so literal. And when we're, when we're reading here about the wind, we're not talking about the wind. Everybody understand? We're not talking about the wind. In fact, always a really good reminder of a principle when studying the apocalyptic literature. Here's one that the uh, artsy people in the crowd are going to love. We cannot too often emphasize, this is George Eldon Ladd, we cannot too often emphasize that apocalyptic language does not convey its message in precise photographic style, but more in the style of modern surrealistic art with great fluidity in imagination. In other words, there's like a lot of, of imagery. There's a lot of visions here that are not meant to be interpreted literally. And so this is not the wind, but this is the wind of judgment. And that's what we were talking about in chapter six was the first six seals were opened on the scroll and so much judgment began to roll out. And, and God is indicating here that he's actually restraining judgment until the appointed time. Now, why would he do that? In fact, we could pause right now and we could decide for ourselves just on the basis of our own lives, our own observations of our country or this world. And we could say, God would have every right to intervene right now and judge the world. Agree? If God wanted to, he could judge us now he would have plenty of reason, lots of material to work with if he wanted to judge the world right now. In fact, most of us could say, God could do that with me personally if he wanted to. But here we have God restraining, calling on the winds of judgment to be, to be restrained. Why would that be? Well, in Romans chapter two, if you want to jot down this reference, verses two and four, Paul speaks of three characteristics of God which I would, I would guess all of us are so grateful for. Paul speaks about the kindness of God, the forbearance of God, and the patience of God. I feel like I could pray every day thanking God for his forbearance of me. He's so kind. He's so merciful. He doesn't give me what I deserve. 
so much patience with who I am. And in fact, in that same passage, Romans 2, Paul says that God is all three of these things, and, and he says that's meant to lead you to repentance. In other words, God wants people to repent, and that's why he's restraining judgment. That's why he's showing everyone mercy, not giving them what they deserve, because he wants them to get it. He wants them to hear the gospel and respond to it. He wants them to find the forgiveness of sin and then not be subject to the judgment. Peter backs this up. He says in, in a passage about the last days, Peter says this in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, the reality is a lot of people die rejecting God, rejecting the message of salvation, the gospel. But God's heart is that every single human being would repent and find life in Jesus Christ. And so God's giving enough time for as many as possible to hear that message and respond to it. Any delay in the coming of Christ and the final judgment is intended to provide more opportunities for, Christ, for, for, for sinners to be saved and to become Christians. And as believers, if we have the heart of God, because that's his heart, he wants everyone to be saved. And if we had his heart, we'd be joining him in that mission. And we'd be taking advantage of the delay. There's a delay in judgment. God hasn't come yet. God's giving us another day. Let's go out and tell some people about Jesus. Let's live our life more fully for him. Let's call people to repentance. Let's invite them to come and see. Let, let's, let's go to them and tell them the, the, the message of the gospel. Let's live our life for Jesus in front of them. Let's take advantage of the day so that more would know him. So as his people were advantaged by his mercy... We have seven of these. We should probably keep going, don't you think? So secondly, we're also sealed by his spirit as Christians. We're sealed by his spirit. See, what we see happening here to the 144,000 is not unique to them, but something that occurs to all believers. Yes, it occurs to them here because they're a special group. We'll talk about that in a moment. But it happens to all believers. We're all sealed by the Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 2, this angel has the seal of the living God. He's instructed to seal the foreheads of the 144,000. Verse 3 speaks to the delay in judgment we just spoke about. And this delay is until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. In, in, in other words, until the full number of people who are going to get saved are saved. Now the seal, just think about this, the seal, you could think for a moment about a legal seal. You've probably seen this, this embossing that happens on, uh, on papers to notarize it, to make it a legal document. The legal seal on a document communicates ownership or origin or authenticity or security. And so the sealing of a Christian, the sealing of the spirit on a Christian's life is the legitimizing of that Christian. It says that you're a genuine Christian because you have the seal of the Holy Spirit, the seal of God on you. It provides us with an assurance about everything else that has taken place by the Holy Spirit. 
It's like this person who is sealed by the Holy Spirit was convicted of their sin. That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives to convince us we're sinners and that we need to repent. That regeneration happened in this person's life. The Holy Spirit came upon us, regenerated us, brought us to life because we were dead in our sins. And then the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which came upon us to indwell us. And these acts of the Holy Spirit in our life are sealed on us again to legitimize us, to authenticate us as the genuine followers of Christ. Paul wrote about this in Ephesians. He wrote about it in several places, but Ephesians 1.13 says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you heard the gospel and you exercised faith, Notice, we're sealed. We were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. And that ought to be so comforting, just on its its face. I just hope that you're sitting here going, it's so awesome to know what the Holy Spirit has done for me. Because it means my identity is in Christ, and I don't need to wonder about that. It means that my security is in Christ, no matter what circumstances I might be facing in my life. That's never going to change. And especially in light of the devastating apocalyptic events ahead. And the first readers of the book of Revelation were in, they were in thick. It was, it was a hard season for them and they were facing persecution and they needed this encouragement. But also for any of us facing trials and traumas here today to know that we belong to God And that he will keep us safe no matter what. That should be enough to keep any of us going to pressing, pressing through and pressing ahead no matter what's going on in our lives. And so that's true for all believers. But then there's something, as I said, something very specific happening with this particular 144,000. And so not only are we advantaged by his mercy and sealed by his spirit, but we need to be aware of his grace for Israel. Now, while all true believers are sealed by the Spirit, this passage deals specifically with Israel and the Jewish people. And for 2,000 years of history, Israel was the focal point. If we were to bring the timeline back out here, we would pick the time of Moses, 2000 BC. We would pick uh, that time with Abraham and God calling him out of Ur, sending him to the promised land, all the way Uh, Perhaps we could say to John the Baptist, and that 2,000-year period of time was the the period of time with with which uh, God was uh, identifying and working through the nation of Israel. God chose Israel from among the other peoples of the world to be the means by which the world would be saved. It was to Israel that the scriptures were given. It was to Israel that the Messiah, into uh, into which the Messiah was born and would come. The world would be saved through the message of the gospel, which would be delivered through Israel. God made his covenant with Abraham all those years before. And he said to Abraham, this is in Genesis 12, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And by that, he meant the Messiah is going to come through you. But the sad reality of our history as we look back on it is, That Israel, when her Messiah came, Israel rejected her Messiah and rejected the message. And God, 
inaugurated his work among what we know as the church at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. But that is not, as we read the scriptures, that is not the end of the story for Israel and for the Jewish people. Now, as we're studying this, there's various viewpoints and perspectives on the apocalyptic literature. And one of the viewpoints is, uh, looking at the entire scriptures, is this idea of replacement theology. And replacement theology is that the church replaces Israel, and there's no more future for Israel. It's just done and set aside. That it's, it's, God is only working through the church now. And we do not embrace a replacement theology at all, but rather a perspective that sees yet a future. While God is working with the church currently, there's yet a future move of God toward Israel. And there will be, at some point along the timeline, a massive turning of Jewish people to their Messiah, Jesus. They'll finally recognize Him. And that's going to come near the end of the age. And that's what we're seeing here in chapter 7. The number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then we have this this going through all the the 12 tribes. A perfect 12 by 12,000 formula in uh, verses 5 through 8, which is, again, symbolic. It's not a precise 144,000 people. It's, it's symbolic of the perfect or the full number or the complete number of those Jewish people who will be converted and will finally embrace their Messiah. And again, to make the point, I feel like I've already made it. I feel like I'm going to keep on making it so we're sure But again, Ladd said, apocalyptic pictures are not meant to be photographs of objective facts. They are often symbolic representations of almost unimaginable spiritual realities. And the unimaginable spiritual reality is this. There's going to be a massive move of God's Spirit upon Jewish people to finally recognize that Yeshua is their Messiah. And that's going to be awesome. Millions of Jewish people, the full number of those who will be converted and believe the Messiah, will come to faith in Yeshua. Now, if you want to explore this a little bit more, I did a series, a four-part series in 2007. How long ago was that? Uh, 2007, uh, it was before we were doing video, so it's an audio series series only. It's in our sermon archive, and it's called The People of God, and it works through the three chapters in Romans where Paul talks specifically about the people of Israel and this uh, coming to understand who their Messiah is at some point yet in the future for us. And when you think about this, there is this unshakable sense, and I know a lot of us have this when we think about Israel, but there is this unshakable sense that Israel and the Jewish people are still very precious to God. Even as they continue to reject him to this day, even as they continue in a lot of ways to make it very difficult for Messianic Jews to even operate in the country and for Christians to operate in the country. But they're still special to him and they have a future in his plan. And so pray for Israel to recognize their Messiah. That ends the first of the two visions in this this chapter. So here's, here's the second one then. John looking now, setting aside the vision of the 144,000, he now looks what is for us a little bit further down the timeline into the future. And I need to see that I am, along with so many others, along with the great multitude, standing with all nations. Now, this seems to be like a rerun of chapter 5. So it's almost like 
when John was looking at chapters four and five, and he's looking at that whole picture, and then they got focused on the scroll in chapter six, they're unsealing the whole thing. And then we end this interlude, chapter seven's like this interlude of these two visions. And he's looked at the 144,000, and it's almost like he's glancing back now to this great multitude who are worshiping the Lord. And here's what it says in verse nine, a great multitude that no one could number. Notice that they're from every nation, all tribes and peoples, and that they're speaking all the languages. So it's this amazing, multicultural, multilinguistic mass of people. Notice what it does not say. They're not from every religion. Okay, they're from every nation, tribe, people, and languages, but not from every religion. All paths do not lead to God. You must believe in Christ to be in this great multitude. And so they're standing, this great multitude is standing before the throne and before the lamb. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're cleansed and they're worshiping the victorious king. That's what the palm branches were all about. They're, 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 they're in this triumphant procession of the victorious king. It's an amazing scene to even just think about. And as we're walking through these implications of of all of these principles to us as Christians. And I, I think about um, the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is, is realized, but it's not fully consummated. When we read the scriptures, we talk about the now, but not yet. The kingdom of God is now, but it's not yet in the sense that it's not completely realized yet. It's not completely fulfilled. But you and I, as, as the followers of Christ, we still have to be living out the principles of God's kingdom. As best we can, we need to be living out the principles of God's kingdom now. Even while we wait the consummation of the kingdom yet in the future. We're called to live by these principles. And as it relates then to this heavenly scene, which is this perfected kingdom of God. As we look at this, the scene of every nation, language, tribe, peoples, together. I'll say again, I've said it before, there's simply no room or excuse for racism in the kingdom and therefore no room for it in the church. Amen? And it isn't enough that we as Christians would be passive non-racists. It isn't enough that we would be passive, uninvolved, non-racists. We have to actively proactively seek to better understand, love, and care for one another across national, linguistic, tribal, and ethnic lines. Active. In other words, we have to be advocates for this vision of eternity that we're seeing in Revelation chapter 7 that we saw in Revelation chapter 5. We look at that heavenly scene and we say, we want that here now as best we're able. And so every decision we make, every decision you make this week, every decision that I'm faced with that has any sort of, of racial implication has to be formed by kingdom principles, has to be informed, in fact, by what we're reading here in Revelation 7. 
any decision or interaction we have along racial lines cannot, cannot be informed by human experience. It cannot be formed by your feelings about something. It cannot be formed by your traditions or where you grew up or, or, or this is a good one, how I was raised. It was just how I was raised. That's not good enough for us as Christians. The only principles that matter when confronting matters of racism are what we find in the scriptures and where we'll find ourselves in eternity. So, yes, black lives matter. And yes, every child matters. And Christians need to stop objecting to efforts to reconcile historic hurts and looking for every excuse to say no. And instead, because we're people who believe the gospel, we need to be leading the way to bring justice to this world. We need to be the leaders, not passively standing by, not trailing the pack, but leaders. Because we have this vision of the eternal throne room where black and white and Asian and indigenous are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Amen? All right. Let's keep going. As one of God's own people, I am eager to join in worship. This mass of redeemed people in verse 10 are crying out with a loud voice. They're rehearsing again what happened to them in Christ, what Christ has done for them. Salvation, they say, belongs to our God. It's, it's not our doing. It's by faith alone through grace. It's all Him. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb the angelic beings who we've been introduced to along the way, they all join in in verse 11. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures who are also these powerful angelic beings. And all of them fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, and, and look at these descriptors, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might, stacking up all these superlatives for God. All of these things be to our God forever and ever. Amen. I guess I just want to ask the question, like, are you eager to join in that eternal worship service? Like, is there such an eagerness to be there that you would gladly sacrifice anything else to be there right now? Because if that's the goal, if that's really on your heart, is to be there in that great multitude, then we should desire any experience we could possibly get of, of that now, however frail it might be. I, I get that we all worship in different ways. I, I get there are different expressions of worship. I get that there can be people who, who, who stand 
uh, perfectly still and don't look like there's any affect on their faces. And, and I get that there can be something happening inside of them that only God sees that's very Holy Spirit and very passionate. And though they show no expression on the outside, I get that they can be worship, worshiping, genuinely worshiping the Lord. And that's why this is such a personal thing. I get that some people are expressive and some people are reserved. I get, I get that in this room, we're all in different places spiritually. I get that we're at different places in terms of our maturity in Christ. I get that we even have a different grasp, depending on, on how far along we are, a different grasp of our salvation and what Jesus has done for us. I get, I get that we've come from different worship traditions. I get all of that. But let me ask you some very personal, introspective, just for you to consider, not condemning anyone else, not thinking about anything else, you and Jesus. Got the ground rules? Just you and Jesus. We're not condemning anyone. We're not laying anything on anyone else. It's just for us to reflect on these things. But these questions, because, you know, I mean, the premise is this. If, if what we're reading here depicts heavenly worship, everybody's shouting, Everyone's fallen down on their face before the Lord. Like everyone's really responding in eternity. And that should cause each of us to think about how we're responding here. So true or false, seven true or false questions. Everything's sevens today. Answer in your head and your heart only. This is just for you and God. True or false in our worship gatherings. I pray along with the one who's praying at the front. So when the pastor or ministry leader comes up here, one of our directors comes up here and leads in prayer, it's well thought out. It's crafted ahead of time. It's considered. It's biblical. It's theologically rich. It's a congregational prayer. It's intentional. They're not coming up here and winging it. They're, they're thinking carefully about it. And when you're hearing that prayer, which is a substantive amount of time in our service, when you're hearing that prayer, are you listening to every word that's being spoken before God? So that you are able at the end of it to say amen and to say amen truthfully. That you have engaged in praying as you were led to pray. Do you sing as the team sings and plays? Sing. If you have a bad voice, sing. If you're off key, sing. If you have no rhythm, sing. Are you singing or are you just observing? Are you taking in a performance? You say, I don't know the songs. Learn them. We, we publish them ahead of time. Learn the song. Or sing along. We don't care if the tune is wrong. The team doesn't care. They have in-ears in. They're never going to hear you. True or false? I clap or raise my hands or dance a little bit or smile or shed tears in worship. Again, I'm not saying that you have to do any of these things. And, and for, an, uh, you know, uh, uh, for example, like raising hands in the scripture, there's plenty of examples of raising hands in scripture. Not once in the scriptures is it commanded. Not once in the grammar where we see raising of hands is it given as a command. But we see lots of examples of it as people's overflowing heart toward God. They just want to raise their hands. You don't have to do it. You don't have to do any of these things. 
to clap, to raise hands, to dance, to smile, to shed tears in worship. But they may be an indicator of where you're at with the Lord in worship. True or false, I give generously, cheerfully, willingly, and regularly to the Lord of my finances. That too is worship. What does that look like for you? True or false, I dig into my own Bible as the sermon is being preached. Do you have a Bible open in front of you? I don't care if it's an analog Bible with, with leather and paper. I don't care if it's on your iPad or it's on your, your uh, smartphone, you're watching the word as I'm preaching it. You should not, please hear me, you should not take my word for it. The authority is not in Todd. The authority is in the word of God. You should be like the Bereans in Acts testing every word I say. But you're not going to be able to do that if you don't have the Bible open in front of you. Mark it, note it, study it, engage with the word of God. That too is an indicator of your readiness for this eternal worship scene. True or false, I spend this time engaged and undistracted. So I'm not checking out social media. I'm not sending emails. I'm not writing texts. I'm not reading anything. I'm not looking around. I'm, I'm focused on me and Jesus. And true or false, one more. True or false, I miss it so much when I can't be with God's people on a Sunday. I mean, honestly, like if you don't miss it when you can't be here, and there's legit reasons to not be here, I get it. You might be sick, might have to work, might be away for vacation, I get it. If you're choosing not to be here, that's a whole other issue. That could be question eight, but I wanted seven. But like if you miss it, like it should be like, oh, I hate it missing church day. You should never, never want to miss this. So all of these are, I just want to say again, these are non-prescriptive indicators of spiritual passion and worship, and it's all a matter between you and God. It's a self-diagnosis of how serious you are and how ready you are to be in this great multitude. To be with all these angelic beings before the throne. And are you showing that passion now? All right, two more, very quickly. I am so grateful to be cleansed of my sin. Verse 13, one of the elders, again, this is an angelic being we were introduced to in chapter 4. One of the elders asked John, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John responds, if you don't know, I certainly don't know. Right? You see that in the text? Verse 14, he says, sir, you know. He says, I don't know. And the elder replied, because, because he did know, and probably he was looking at John going like, John seems super confused about what he's looking at right now. And he says to him, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And so at some period yet future for us, there will be an intense period of persecution unleashed by the seventh seal, which we haven't gotten to yet. And this crowd is largely made up of them. It's tied into the martyrs that we read of in chapter 6. And for all of us, the commonality is having been washed to be wearing these robes that are made white in the blood of the Lamb. And are you grateful to be cleansed of your sin? 
And if you are, if you're genuinely, Jesus, thank you. I know just how much of a sinner I am. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me. And when you think about that, that should motivate our worship. That should elicit tears. He didn't have to save you. He didn't have to save me, and he did at great cost. And then finally this, as one of God's own people, I am longing for the day to come. I mean, I hope that all of us have a longing. All of us who are genuine believers have a longing for eternity in our hearts, that it consumes our thoughts, that it motivates our actions and our attitudes, because it'll change everything. If we have this perspective of time and eternity, then, then that's going to change how we view what's going on now in our lives. There's a sense in which, in fact, in verse 15, there's a sense in which, if this doesn't blow your mind too much, there's a sense in which even as we live down here on the timeline, we're already there in eternity. Before the throne of God, verse 15, serving him day and night in his temple, that we're sheltered in his presence. Verse 16, in fact, is a, is a preview of Revelation 21 all the way to the end of the book where there's no hunger and there's no thirst and we're not affected by the sun's scorching heat. We spend our lives looking to be protected, feeling vulnerable. We spend our lives trying to satisfy our hunger and our thirst more often than not in ways that are unhealthy. I have so much good in my life and I can be so discontent and be looking for something else. I'm talking in terms of testimony right now. How often my prayers before God are, I need more. The day is coming. I won't hunger at all. I won't thirst at all. I'm not going to be scorched by the heat. Because the Lamb, Jesus, is in the midst of his throne. And he'll be my shepherd forever, my guide. He's going to satisfy my thirst with living water. And so all the pain and all the struggles and all the traumas and all the brokenness, all the death and destruction of this world will fade away. All the struggles and stresses of our own personal lives will fade away as God wipes every tear from your eyes. Every tear. You should long for that day. Not only because Jesus has prepared this awesome place for us, but also because we as the people of God will be able to leave this sin-stained, pain-filled, sorrow-plagued world behind us. And enjoy His company forever as we step off the timeline at our appointed time and into eternity. That should be the best hope you ever receive. The only hope we really need. I hope it encourages you today.